If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Romans 3. Hopefully by now in this series that we've been in, you've been able to access the files that are on the homepage, which are some printouts of Romans 3 verses 19 to the end of the chapter, and then Romans 4, 5, 6, and 7 that have been double-spaced for the sake of you marking up the text. I encourage you to have a pen and a highlighter to make the most of this time. Sometimes we don't like marking in our Bibles, or if you're like me, you come to a conclusion that you think is right on and you mark in your Bibles, and then you end up needing to white it out because God has shown you something completely different about it, and you keep growing and growing and growing. I would, I would pray that you would also utilize that this opportunity to mark up the text heavily as you're observing things and connecting the dots, and as I, I try to help you connect the dots here. Uh, another thing is, is that you notice that we've put on the homepage a link for some uh, sound Christian growth resources. It says something to that effect on there. It's a link, and it will actually take you to some audio talks that Miles Stanford, who wrote the Green Letters, put together for some people that were on his mailing list in the 60s, and they are well worth your time to take a listen to to get your mind saturated in the growth truths of the Scripture. If you will think back to the reason why we started this Living the Christ Life uh, series is because if we are going to understand how to use our spiritual gifts, we have to understand what it is to operate in the Spirit. We started with this incredible premise. In fact, I'm calling it the synthetic premise because it's the overall idea of what we're looking at. And that is Romans 5.1, the fact that we have peace with God due to our justification by faith in Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ right now, you have absolute peace with God. And it accredits it to the fact of we've been justified by faith in Christ. And we've been breaking down over the past few weeks exactly what that means by going back to Romans 3 and tackling all of this. To recap a little bit of last week's sermon because of how it works here, we understand that while grace is a pure, unrecompensed kindness and favor of God, and that justification is a gift that has been made freely available to every person, we also need to understand that there is great cost in the redemption of mankind as seen in Jesus Christ becoming our mercy seat. Now, the second part of that you're not going to grasp yet, maybe, and that's my hopes today is to unfold this for you. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, I ask you to start in chapter 3, verse 19, and we're going to read 19 through 26. If not, you can easily look on the screen and follow along. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith 
This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Last week, we dealt with all free terms. We talked at length about the idea of gift and what that means in verse 24, understanding that it's something that is freely given. It is something that you cannot pay for. Anytime that you try to pay for it, it ceases to be a gift. It now becomes a transaction. We also talked about the incredible word grace. We often take this word for granted, and it deserves our full attention and contemplation. And it means God's goodwill or his loving kindness or his favor towards us or his chafer, uh, put it so well, his pure, unrecompensed kindness and favor. It is God's infinite favor on the infinitely ill-deserving, and that is us. Now, I know that we're dealing with a lot of vocabulary. We're going very slow. Uh, Last week, we talked about the free terms involved in this situation, and today we're going to talk about the costly terms that are involved in this situation. And I think it's important, just as a caveat, to understand that the reason why we're taking a snail's pace, it's not a waste of time. Each word that we are covering speaks to something that God has done for us, and he wants us to know more about himself, more about his love for us. And we know that he wants us to know these things, if for no other reason that he included it in his word. It's important to understand that this doctrine is pivotal pivotal to your Christian growth. You cannot grow as a Christian. You will not mature. You will not develop if you do not understand everything that is entailed in justification by faith. And the reason is, is because our growth is based on our position in Christ, not our practice in Christ. Our practice will never be anything if it is not rooted and flowing out of our understanding of our position in Christ. And though God has already done all these things in his son, it is our failure to recognize these things and embrace these things and meditate upon these things and not move on from these things that guarantees our growth in the Lord. We will not have a victorious life. You cannot live the Christ life if you are not aware of these things. And so I don't want to make any apologies for the reason why we're going so slow through this. If you would, please look at Verses 24, 25, and 26, and let's read those again. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I want to ask you to mark two words. You should already have probably the word in verse 24, justified, Mark. We looked at that a few weeks ago. You should already have the word gift and the word grace marked. But I'm going to ask you today to mark the word redemption. And if you look into verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, I'm going to ask you to mark those words. 
No Christian is beyond understanding these words. They may seem like huge words. There may be a lot wrapped up in them. But by no means should a Christian ever be ignorant of these things. These things are our life. So where we have gift and grace as free terms, we have redemption and propitiation as extremely costly terms. The word redemption is the word apolotrosis in the Greek. And the definition here is to set free or to liberate or to deliver liberation or deliverance, one of the lexicons tells us. Uh, Schofield gave this definition, to deliver by paying a price. Now, it's important for us to understand this is God's work in relation to sin. In fact, if you would just entertain this for a second, if I'm always recommending books for people to read, and I understand I recommend more than you could ever possibly read in your lifetime, but some things I think would be indispensable for your library. There is a book called Salvation. That's all it's called, Salvation. And it's by Earl Rodmacher, R-A-D-M-A-C-H-E-R, Earl Rodmacher. You can get it on Amazon or eBay, get you a used copy. Sometimes you can find them for about four bucks a piece. It's an excellent book that has been done on the doctrine of salvation. And he says that redemption is is God's work in relation to sin. Now, this is important. Regarding justification, this is not a ransom that is paid to Satan in exchange for sinners. And the reason why I say regarding justification is because redemption is used all throughout the Scriptures. You could get a concordance out and you could look it up, and you will find that context will always determine the meaning of redemption and what it's in relation to. If you want to jot this down for your further study later, an example would be Romans 8.23, where the redemption that is being spoken of there is the redemption of the body of the believer, and that is speaking of our glorification, not our justification. So depending on how redemption is being used in context is how we should understand it. So regarding justification, there's a lot of people that have subscribed to this idea that's called the ransom theory, Uh, They call it the ransom theory of the atonement, and it's the idea that Satan needed to be paid off in order to redeem sinners in some way. Now, this is completely against Scripture. A lot of this started with a man named Origen, who was considered one of the early church fathers right after the death of the apostles. He was also known as the father of of allegory, uh, or allegorizing the text. In other words, he would read something that was plainly put there, and, and he would add all kinds of imagery and try to put all kinds of themes in the passage that weren't just plainly there. He wasn't doing a plain reading uh, of the text. But pl- probably where we most famously see this idea being communicated is if you've ever read the book or seen the movie The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. And you will find that when Aslan dies on that stone table, it is to appease the queen. That is not what the atonement deals with here. The fact is, is that the human race belongs to God. The only reason that Satan has any sort of claim on the human race is because our willingness to disobey God. And so in that, we now become children of the devil. I think John 8 is pretty clear uh, of the idea is, is if you're not on one side, you're on the other. Uh, There is no fence as far as God is concerned. You're either for him or you're against him in the situation. You are either redeemed and justified by the blood of Christ, or uh, you are without hope in this world and alienated from God because of sin, and therefore in cahoots with Satan. So 
It's important for us to recognize the human race belongs to God. He is the creator and we are the creatures. And the ransom that is paid is due to the power of sin condemning us and enslaving us. It doesn't just damn us to spiritual death, but it is a controlling power over our life that arouses lust in us that makes us want to sin and want those things that we cannot have. Uh, Rodmacher wrote this in his book. It was God who exacted payment. Yet the Bible does not speak of a ransom being paid to God the Father, for he did not hold us in bondage. Now this brings hopefully a lot of different thinking to the idea of redemption, because the person that was faulted, the person that's owed, or where the debt was run up was with God. That's where the problem is. The problem lies in our relationship with God due to sin. If that is the case, needing to be redeemed or needing to be set free from that situation is not because God is holding us down and in captivity in some way and we need to be freed from him. No, the idea is that we actually need reconciliation to him. But our problem is, is that this relationship has been completely cut off because that's just how powerful and how contrary to everything that God stands for, his very nature, his very person, his very standards, that's exactly what sin does, is it destroys our connection with God completely. So the profound thing about redemption is the idea of us needing to be liberated and delivered in this situation, and God being the offended party is going to put forward the means of which to redeem us. Now Jesus is referred to, if you wanted to mark this, as an infant, as the redemption. And you find that in Luke 1, verse 68, and Luke 2, verse 38. Again, I didn't give you discussion questions for this week, but I'm going to give you enough things to look at that would hopefully encourage your study. If we were to look at Ephesians 1, 7, you don't necessarily have to turn there, but I'm sure Mitch can throw it up on the screen for us. Ephesians 1, 7, this connects redemption to the blood of Christ and the forgiveness of trespasses. Notice it says in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now, if you want a verse to, to meditate and chew on for a week, there's a good one right there. I promise you won't exhaust it by the time the week is up. If you also want to compare that, you can jot this down to Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Uh, speak of the same means there. So regarding justification, redemption is a payment made that sets the believer free from the penalty of sins. That would probably a good way to, be a good way to look at it. Redemption is the payment made that sets the believer free from the penalty of sins. I think it's important that we could probably stop and pray right here and honor God our Father incredibly because you will never face the lake of fire. It is an impossibility. And it's an impossibility based on nothing that we have done and all that has been done for us. Because when you're dealing with the concept of redemption and being liberated, how was redemption secured for undeserving and destitute sinners? And I think what is profound here is that you find that the answer is the same way as in the Old Testament, only with superior results due to a superior sacrifice. And so what we're going to look at now is this word propitiation. And I'm going to ask you to bear with me during this time because I'm going to take you on a little trip through the scriptures to see some things. And the whole reason why is because I believe that the New American Standard Version, as good of a translation as it is, 
has missed the mark in using this word propitiation. And here's the reason why. The word propitiation means appease. If you want to just mark that down, I know that's not on the screen, but you could just write it in maybe. The word propitiation means to appease. And we're going to look at some of these things here, the word group that surrounds the idea of propitiation. And I want to make an argument that there is a better translation that we should use here and that some translations have used. Let's deal with the Greek word real quick. The first word is halosmos, and you, you find that in 1 John 2, 2. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. And that signifies what our Lord became for sinners. By the way, this is from Unger's uh, Bible Dictionary. It signifies what our Lord became for sinners. The last word there is helaskomai, and it's the idea of indicating what God that God has become gracious or propitious. In fact, uh, the idea that's used in Luke 18 and, and uh, Hebrews 2 is the idea of reconciliation or the fact that God uh, has shown favor or been gracious and merciful in some way. Uh, in those passages, and again, you can look at those. All those, all this information will be up uh, whenever the sermon is posted afterwards. But the one I want to focus on is the middle word, hilasterion, and it denotes the place of propitiation. And notice that it's only mentioned two times in the New Testament. It's mentioned here where we're, where we're dealing with the idea of propitiation in Romans 3.25, but the, the meaning that is given in Hebrews 9.5 is actually the meaning mercy seat. And the reason is, is because in Hebrews 9 verses 2 through 5, they are dealing with the temple furniture. And everything that was created in order for man to be in an acceptable place to be able to meet with God. And I think what's important for us to understand is that the meaning in Hebrews 9.5 is not any different from what this word, hilasterion, means in Romans 3.25. And I would encourage you to write above this, especially if you have the papers printed out, right above propitiation, if you would write the word, mercy seat. If we dealt with the idea of redemption, and we saw that redemption was God's work in relation to sin, we're going to see that this idea of the mercy seat is God's work in relation to himself. Sinners need to be redeemed. God wants it to be so. And so there's a work that is involved to make this happen. And so I'm, I want to explain a concept I want to take us to the Old Testament so we can see how this is fleshed out. And then I want us to build upon why propitiation and atonement and expiation are not good words to translate here for this word, hilasterion. Instead, we want to look at this as being the mercy seat is the idea. So now let's talk about this concept, type and antitype. If you want to mark this down, it'll be up on the slide, type and antitype. Types are real persons, events, or things in the Old Testament that have a substantial relationship with corresponding New Testament persons, events, or things. The New Testament fulfilling is called an antitype. And here's what I want you to get is sometimes in the Old Testament, we see physical events that take place. But in the New Testament, we see that those physical events actually are showing us truths that are spiritual in the church age. Let me give you an example. We see that in Exodus, when the children of Israel are in captivity and Passover is coming and the angel of death is coming, the last plague against Pharaoh and the Egyptians to let the people go, there is a command that is issued by God 
that they are to have a spotless lamb at their Passover meal. That the lamb cannot be with any blemish, anything wrong with it whatsoever. It must be a whole lamb where there is no fault. We see that that is a physical thing that the Jews had to deal with at that time that symbolizes spiritually the spotlessness that goes on with our Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't just physically spotless. He was spiritually spotless. He was without sin. That would be an example. Another example would be the idea of when the, when the spotless lamb was sacrificed at that time of Passover in Exodus, they were commanded to put the blood on their doorposts and the angel of death would pass over them. And that's the reason why they call it Passover. And so they drained the lamb's blood into a basin and they literally painted their doorposts outside of the house with blood. And because they did that, death passed over. Well, when we appropriate Christ's blood by faith, and notice this is a spiritual thing, our response to hearing the gospel message is to appropriate the work done by faith, spiritual death passes over us. It has no claim on us whatsoever. So that would be the idea. The blood on the doorpost physically in the Old Testament is the type. The appropriation of Christ's blood to us by faith spiritually is the antitype. Now, the reason why I tell you that is because I want to show you some things that are going to communicate why we should understand this word as mercy seat. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Leviticus. If you need to get out your Swiffer and dust off this portion of your Old Testament, that's fine. No one's going to fault you for it. You're in the privacy of your own home. Nobody's going to know. Confess it before the Lord. You're good. Chapter 16 of Leviticus, verse 5 is where I want to start. And what this is talking about is God is going to communicate the idea of the law of atonement. The word atonement comes from a Latin rendering, which means at oneness or at onement is the idea. And that's where we get atonement. And is the idea of removing the obstruction between God and mankind. But I want us to see what is all physically wrapped up in communicating, not just uh, what was involved in dealing with sin, but also the, the terribleness of sin and how far it extended within the camp. Now, real quick, let me, let me re remind you, propitiation means appease. Uh, sometimes when we deal with the word atonement, the idea is covering up sin or to pacify in some way. Um, and, and I think it's important that you have that in your mind as you move forward. Now, I'm going to ask you to, if you would just if you were just grazing through this chapter, chapter 16, you would notice in verse 2 that the word mercy seat is brought up twice. And let's explain what the mercy seat is. The mercy seat is the lid that goes on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So everybody's going back to Harrison Ford and Raiders of the Lost Ark and that kind of thing. So if you put your Indiana Jones hat on and get your whip out, you will remember the whole idea of him coming upon the Ark. And inside of it contained a jar of manna from the wilderness, the staff of Aaron that budded, and the law was placed inside of it. And it was covered in pure gold. It was purified and it was covered in gold. This, this box, this rectangle box of acacia, what almost like a trunk that we would think of today. The box itself was covered in gold. And gold always symbolizes in Scripture the pure righteousness of God. And so when we deal with that idea of, of these contents being encased by the pure righteousness of God, the lid was something that was totally separate, crafted out of gold, all made in one piece. 
and was set out to be the lid that goes on top of this ark. And, and if you remember from either seeing that or if you want to Google real quick a picture of the Ark of the Covenant, you will notice, and nobody knows exactly what it looked like, but you will notice that there are two winged creatures, they're cherubim, that were also crafted out of the same piece. They weren't separate pieces that were super glued on later or anything like that. They were all one piece that was crafted. Their wings would be extended and touching over the top, and the cherubim would be actually looking down to the middle part of the lid. Now, it's all one part because it represents the pure unity of God himself, that he is one. And so when they would place this on there, you now had a situation to where sin was dealt with at the mercy seat of God. Now, with all of that being said, I want to pick up in verse 5 of Leviticus 16. I'm going to try not to make too many comments for the interest of time. You all know that's absolutely impossible. But we're going to walk through this, and I want you to just see some things. And I encourage you, go back to this passage over and over and over so you understand exactly what happened on the cross. Look at verse 5. This is speaking of Aaron, the first high priest. It says, He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel, now mark it, two male goats, two of them, for a sin offering. And if this helps you at all, I put a number one next to sin offerings because we're also going to deal with burnt offerings, especially if you read the entire chapter. And for burnt offerings, I put down the, the number two, so I get all my sacrifices and everything correct. So notice, two male goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. And again, forgive me for pausing every time, but if you go back and you read verses 1 through 4, you'll see where some of this puts together. The ram is actually found for a burnt offering in verse 3. So it says here in verse 6, Then Aaron shall offer the bull, the bull was also found in verse 3, for a sin offering, that's the first offering we're dealing with, and notice, which is for himself, mark that. The priest had to make a sin offering for himself because he was not clean. That he may make atonement, notice, that his sins may be covered, is the idea, or that they may be propitiated, that they may be appeasement that is there. Make atonement for himself and for his household. Verse 7, he shall take the two goats, that's what you saw in verse 5, and present them before Yahweh, the Lord, at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Or some of your translations may say as Azazel is the Hebrew word. And what this word means is mean, it means an entire removing is what it means. So if you want to mark that in there for the idea of what a scapegoat is. So notice there's two goats. They essentially roll the spiritual equivalent of what we may consider dice today. I don't know any other way to, to relate that. I'm not trying to be blasphemous at all. But they roll this and, and a lot would fall on a certain one. Okay, this goat is going to be for the Lord. This goat is going to be designated the scapegoat. Verse 9, then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord, for Yahweh, fell and make it a sin offering. Number one offering. Verse 10, but the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before Yahweh. Notice this, why? To make atonement upon it. Now think about this. The second goat, the scapegoat, is going to be presented alive for the purpose of making atonement. And you've got to sit here and you've got to ask yourself, wait a second. Isn't the whole idea of making atonement is the fact that there's a shedding of blood? Notice that's the first 
goat. The first goat is going to be the sacrifice for the shedding of blood. The second goat is going to remain alive, but is going to communicate something significant. It says here, verse 11, Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, number one offering, which is for himself. So notice that's for himself, and that's exactly what we just talked about in verse 6. And make atonement for himself, covering for his sin, and for his household, and he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, the shedding of blood. Verse 12, he shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. Now, something I want you to, to, to know, and this is just for all you nerds out there who love to look at stuff like that. The actual altar where the fire pan of coals came from was outside of the veil that separated uh, the holy place from the holy of holies. And in the holy place, you would have had such things as the showbread and the menorah and those types of things. But there was actually a fire pan. It's like one of those scoops that you would get at the hotel whenever you're trying to get ice to fill your ice bucket. You would actually fire that up and, and fill it with coals and stuff. And then that priest would pull back the veil and enter into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was with this fire pan going on. And he's going to take two hands of incense in order to spread upon it. And he's going to bring it inside the veil. Now, this is important because only this priest was allowed to go in and he was only allowed to go in after he had sacrificed the bull in order to cover up his own personal sin. Now, Verse 12 again, he shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before Yahweh and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil and he shall put the incense on the fire before Yahweh. Now here's the reason why, and we may not readily get this, but I want you to pay attention, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat. Now there's that word again, mercy seat. It may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony now watch this, otherwise he will die. So not only is he purified from his sin, because the bull was offered, the blood was poured out for him, but he's also making an offering before God in order to cover the mercy seat. Now the question is, why in the world would he take this fire pan and put two hands of finely ground incense all over it so that smoke would fill this area and cover up the mercy seat? And the reason is, is because the mercy seat is where God meets with people. We must understand that. The mercy seat is where God meets with human beings. And so this cloud, this smoke needed to fill the area so that it covered the priest Aaron's face from actually seeing the Shekinah glory presence of God manifest above the mercy seat, or he would die from looking at God. The idea of offering up this incense was not just because it was pleasing for the Lord, but because it was inside the veil where no one else was allowed to go and only the high priest could go once a year. He still needed to be protected by God, even though his sin or protected from God, even though his sin had been atoned for. Now, this is important for us to understand because this shows the significance of all that it entails to be in the Lord's presence and just how horrible and far reaching sin is to keep us from the Lord's presence. It says here in verse 14, Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull that was offered for himself and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat. So even though his sin has been atoned for, he's bringing it into the mercy seat and he's sprinkling it with his finger 
on the lid in between where the two cherubim are there looking down on the middle section with their wings touching over the top. So the blood goes on top of this lid. Now remember, what's inside? The law is inside. And so if you have the pure gold representing the undefiled righteousness of God covering the law, and then you have the cherubim, spiritual creatures, looking in on this situation, you now have blood that is covering over the breaking of the law of the person. It says here that they may cover the mercy seat, that is, on the ark of the testimony, otherwise he will die. Forgive me, I read that twice, this is the second time. Verse 14, moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Also, in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Now watch this. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering. Now that's the one where the lot fell for Yahweh. Shall slaughter the, the goat of the sin offering, offering number one, which is for the people. And bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. And sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself. So notice, only one high priest is allowed to go. No one else can enter. So he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. Verse 18, Then he shall go out to the altar that is before Yahweh and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat, and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. And with his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it, and from the impurities of the sons of Israel consecrated. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Now again, why did he leave this goat alive? Now this Goat is going to be offered, but not in the way that we think. Verse 21, then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat. Now watch this and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. The wilderness, a place of desolation where nothing survives. Now, what in the world is going on here? Number one, the priest has to atone for himself and his family, and that's the purpose of the bull. Number two, the priest also, now that he's clean, has to cover up the actual presence of Yahweh from seeing his face, otherwise he will die. And so he offers the incense because he cannot come fully into God's presence without suffering repercussions. Number three, he takes a goat and he kills the goat, slaughters the goat, and he offers the blood of the goat on behalf of the sins of the people of Israel, everything that they've done. 
So the covering of their sins is by the first goat. And the second goat embodies the idea of sins being confessed or transferred onto it by Aaron. And then this goat is sent out into a desolate place never to return. In other words, it's a complete removal of the idea of sin from their presence. Now, for some of you, this idea of type and antitype is starting to click with what you see for Jesus Christ. But let me go ahead and walk through the situation. I have a quote here that is actually from a man named Linsky. And he kind of sums this whole idea up, but I want to show you where the focus is of this chapter. Once a year on the great day of atonement, the Jewish high priest, and he alone took blood from the great altar of burnt offering and went into the Holy of Holies, into which none dared enter, but he and he only for the purpose of this function. And he sprinkled that blood on the kaporeth, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, the kaporeth, that is the mercy seat called the mercy seat in order to cover the sins of the whole people. And the ark were deposited the tables of the law, that law which condemned these sins. And the kaporeth, the mercy seat, covered those tables. But only when it was thus sprinkled with expiatory blood did it cover the sins of the people from God and from his punishment." Now, I think it's important for us to understand that when we see that and we think back to Romans 3.25, God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This word that we're dealing with, hilasterion, is actually dealing with the fact that Jesus Christ has become our mercy seat before God. And this is where a holy and righteous God can meet with believing sinners and acquit them of all wrongdoing due to the sufficient payment of righteous blood that covers them. Now, you might say, wait a second, how come the word propitiation is listed here? Did they get it wrong? And what makes me think that I'm smarter than them? Well, let me go ahead and clear that up. I'm not smarter than them. Turn, take your Bibles and turn to Romans 5. And let's see this concept spelled out. Many have understood this idea of propitiation or atonement, the word hilasterion, that's how they've translated it, in relation to how a sacrifice was a means of appeasing the wrath of God. But I don't think that's a biblical concept. I don't think, I don't think that we can totally put our weight into that and say, yes, that's emphatically so across the board. I don't think it's, it's true. Since the word propitiate means to appease, in some situations we see where this might be the case. If you want to look at some other time at what happens in Numbers 25, it's a pretty crazy scene. But we see where the shedding of blood actually uh, appeases the wrath of God in a situation. But still, I, I, think, I think we have to recognize uh, for the unbeliever, we would expect the wrath of God to be against them, but the wrath of God can still be against the believer. And sometimes we discredit that idea. We're told in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, anytime that there is a suppression of truth and unrighteousness, the wrath of God is being revealed. It's the passive wrath of God. He allows for people to continue on their sinful way to receive the consequences of their own actions. But this word must be understood in relation to Paul's use of wrath in the book of Romans. And so look at chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Watch what he says here. Pay attention. 
much more than having now been justified by his blood. Now, that's what we're talking about. That's the subject that we're under now. And this is a transition phase here. Notice what it says. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Now, think about that. Now that we have been justified because of Christ's sacrifice, there's a possibility now that believers will not incur wrath. In fact, look at verse 10. He explains the same thing in a different way. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, that's through our justification, what we're talking about, to God through the death of his son. And that's what we have to remember. Everything involving justification is death truth, not life truth. It says here, much more having been reconciled, speaking of our justification, we shall be saved by his life, by his resurrection, the new life that he gives. The idea of wrath is still a possibility for the believers, and that's what Romans is all written about, is dealing with the wrath of God. How do you deal with it? How do you get out from under the wrath even as a believer? And what it is, is Christ needs to be living his life through you. That's the whole reason why we're dealing with this. Now, why is propitiation not a satisfactory translation here? Here's the reason why. Since wrath is still a reality for the believer as well as the unbeliever, depending on the actions that we have done, it might be better for us to understand Hilasterion as the mercy seat dealing with the demands of God being met in a judicial sense. Now you might say, good grief, why in the world does that matter? Here's the reason why it matters is because justification is a word that is used in a judicial sense. It is God publicly declaring to all eternity that you and I as believers in Christ have been justified freely by his grace. God is no longer putting the penalty of sin against us. He is acquitting us of all wrongdoing because he is taking Christ's sacrifice in our stead. And so he is declaring us righteous to everyone, seen and unseen. And it's a judicial use of the word. So his wrath has been appeased judicially concerning us because the blood covers it. But this present warning of wrath is in relation to ongoing sin in the believer's life. If we are people who are currently entertaining sin in our lives, participating in sin, allowing for sin, being okay with sin, it's not a big deal. No one will know. I'm not hurting anybody else uh, but myself. It's really not that big of a deal. Don't be so legalistic. All these cop-outs that we have in order to clarify sin being okay, we are wrong in that. And the wrath of God is going to take it's toll on us by him removing his hands in that situation. Judicially, we're declared righteous. That's a done deal. That can never be revoked. You can never revoke the declaration of God. But here's what's scary about this is we're no longer dealing with a courtroom situation when we're talking about the believer's walk. When we talk about the believer's walk, we're now dealing with the family issue. And the reason is, is because God has brought us into being his children and we are now living in opposition to our Father. It has everything to do with ruining our family fellowship. It's important to understand that if we're involved in sin, God is not going to evict us from the family. He doesn't do that. 
But to sit here and think that God is okay with us entertaining sin after we've been declared righteous, after redemption has been applied to us, after we've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is absolutely unacceptable. The entertainment of sin with the believer leads to fractured fellowship. And we are asking for God to discipline us, and we are desperately in need of not just confession of this sin, but repentance in relation to that sin. Our mind obviously needs to be changed about it, because for some reason we've thought it's okay. It's not okay. Only that will restore fellowship. Now why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because if propitiation and atonement are words that deal with the covering of sin. That doesn't correspond with what has happened for us in Jesus Christ. Take your Bible and turn to Hebrews 9. And I'm just going to touch on a few verses here, but I want you to see what all is encompassed in it. Hebrews 9, look at verses 6 and 7. And he just got done talking about all the furniture uh, that was crafted for the tabernacle, says here, Now when these things, that's the furniture, have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, the second place, and that's the Holy of Holies that we saw in Leviticus 16, in the second, only the high priest, only one person, enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, to cleanse the priest, and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So this completely relates to everything we just saw in Leviticus 16. Stick with me here. Don't lose sight. Look down at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation, in other words, he entered into the tabernacle that is in heaven. This is something we got to recognize. Why would you want to study the tabernacle that's on earth at the end of Exodus? The reason why you would want to do that is because it is an earthly erected replica of what is already a reality in the heavenly sphere before God the Father. And so notice it says, verse 12, and not through the blood of goats and calves. That's not how he came into this perfect holy of holies in heaven, but through his own blood. Mark that through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He didn't have to enter year after year after year on a certain day. No, by his blood, he entered once and that was it. Now look down at verses 24 and 25. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one and the true one, but into heaven itself. The true one is the one in heaven. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. He stands as an advocate for us, as an intermediary for us, as the priest who applies the blood that makes us acceptable, that makes the declaration of righteousness possible. Look at verse 25. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. No, Christ enters once because his sacrifice is superior. It's perfect. Now, why is this a problem and why are we dealing with this in relation to the word propitiation? Look over in chapter 10, verse 4. And mark this, because this doesn't mince words at all. For it is impossible 
And that word means lacking capability, and it means improbable of ever being done. Okay? It cannot happen. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Let me read it one more time so you get it. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What did you just see in Leviticus 16? You saw that there was an offering of a bull for the high priest as an atonement, as a propitiation. And you saw that there was an offering of goats, one for the people, and one where sins were confessed upon for the people and sent out in the middle of nowhere, eventually dying in some way, but talking about the idea of getting sin out of the picture. But all of these things could never take away sins, and that's the issue here. The issue of the fact is sins were covered, but they weren't taken away by those inferior sacrifices. Regardless of how perfect and spotless the bull was or the goat was, it still couldn't get the job done. And so now there's a problem because you have a whole heap of sin that's covered up, but none of it's removed. You ever had somebody unexpectedly drop into your house? Didn't know they were going to be there? They just... Hey, how's it going? Can I come in for a second? They're well-meaning believers or something like that. They want to fellowship. Maybe the bug guy came by or something. Oh my gosh, go throw the covers over the bed. You know, it, it looked like somebody had had some weird party in your bed last night because of the way you sleep and toss and turn or whatever it is. But now it all looks perfect and pristine spread out all over the place. We were covering up the mess that was really concealed underneath when kids make a mess, sometimes they just pull out one of their blankets and cover it up and then sit down on top of it. The mess is still there. It's covered. It's not seen. But you take away that inferior covering and you find out the great difficulty that you have underneath the surface. This brings us to the superiority of Jesus Christ as our mercy seat. Look at Hebrews 10 verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. Here it is again, connected to verse 4, which can never, never take away sins. But he, capital H, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because the work was done. Because the payment of sins is a death truth, and the death put forward for sins was perfection. It says here, he sat down at the right hand of God, verse 13, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. I, it's been brought to my attention that there are some people that actually listen to our live stream who scoff at things that I say and make fun of things that I say on here because of these truths. Let me say something very clear so that it's not mistaken and maybe you'll stop laughing for a moment to listen. The only hope that you have is in Jesus Christ. You cannot save yourself. Your sin is so dark and so damning that you will be forever in the lake of fire. You won't rot in hell. You'll burn forever. And that is because you have merited nothing but damnation and destruction by what you have done. God loves you beyond your idiocy and your foolishness and your hypocrisy and your pride and your self-image 
and you're keeping up appearances, so much so that it cost him great personal expense in giving his very own son, Jesus Christ, to die a death that we should have died a million times over. And he offers you eternal life. The scripture is clear. God loves you and he gave Jesus for you. And if you believe in him, you will be saved. You have eternal life. It can never be lost. That's just how much he loves you. But I guarantee you that if you ever wanted to know where you're at in the Bible, here's where it is. Verse 13, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. If you reject the offer of free salvation, you will end up an enemy under the footstool of God. And your knee will bow and confess him to be Lord of all time. Don't despise his love. Don't reject his grace. Believe and appropriate his sacrifice for everything wrong that you have ever done. It says here, verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, meaning those who are set apart. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their hearts and upon their mind, I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Notice there was a time period where the sins would be remembered no more. Watch this. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Why did Jesus sacrifice one time and sit down? Because forgiveness had been accomplished, and forgiveness is the key, not covering. Forgiveness. And this is what the perfect mercy seat of Jesus Christ does. He removes the sin completely. He doesn't just cover it up. It is washed away. And he is the perfect mercy seat where we can meet with God without any presence of sin whatsoever. Now, if that wasn't just dandy enough, turn back to Romans chapter 3. I want you to look back at what it says in verse 25. He displayed him publicly, and the idea really there is that he set Christ forth before himself as a mercy seat. And in the actual order in the Greek should be the mercy seat through faith in his blood. And the emphasis here is believing. Believe it. When you believe, you now appropriate this opportunity to yourself. And it's secured in his blood. His blood is the effectual tool that removes our sins, removed, gone, never again to be there. Excuse me. Notice, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. God is making a demonstration for people because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. What are the sins previously committed that he passed over? The ones that were covered up by the blood of bulls and goats that could never take away sin. It could never deal with the problem. It could only get it out of the way temporarily. But now at this time, when he put Jesus forward on the cross, he dealt decisively with sin. Now watch this. Verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, and real quick, if you got the the NASB, notice that's in italics, mark that out. It ain't even supposed to be there. It kind of ruins the thought here. But it's the same demonstration of righteousness that was in verse 25. For the demonstration of righteousness at the present time, so that, here's the reason, he would be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, that by putting forward Christ, he can now accept sinners and yet he remains just. His righteousness remains intact and it's undiminished even though he has now made it possible to have a relationship with infinitely ill-deserving people. But not only that, he went a step further. He also becomes our justifier. It's the idea of his acceptance of sinners, but it doesn't compromise his being. We've been accepted by the finished work of Christ, which allows God to make a favorable public declaration about us without any contradiction or reservation. In other words, we're completely harmonious with God, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And he is our mercy seat that removes sin from the picture. Rodmacher summed it up this way, because Christ paid the full ransom price for sin forever and is the propitiation or the mercy seat that satisfied the holiness of our righteous God, God can be righteous while at the same time declaring believers righteous. That's a privileged position. That's grace. The door to grace is wide open, full, free, paid for, no work demanded. Simply a response. Now, this should put us on two places. Number one, it should make us recognize just how free salvation is and prompt us to be sharing it with people. Just because you're quarantined doesn't mean you can't share the gospel. Doesn't mean that you can't use every medium that's been put before you in order to preach Christ and him crucified. The second would be for the believer who feels insecure or inferior. Let me share this quote with you. It summed it up perfectly. I can't do any better. This is by a guy named William Newell, wrote a really good commentary on Romans. He said, God is therefore, check it out, at rest about us forever. However poor our understanding of truth, however weak our walk, God is looking at the blood of Christ and not at our sins. All claims against us were met when Christ made peace by the blood of his cross. In fact, we would even say it this way. God cannot even see you anymore because you are so covered with Jesus. I hope that causes your heart to rejoice. I hope in whatever way that the enemy has been attacking you and filling your mind during this time of isolation, that you would recognize that the truth about us and about Jesus being our mercy seat has not changed. He has bore the sin problem. He has paid for it fully, and he has not just covered it, but he has washed it completely away. Praise God. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our perfect mercy seat, who does away with the law and offers righteousness in himself to every person who believes. It is by the blood that all sin is gone. Doesn't matter what we commit today. Doesn't matter what we commit tomorrow. Those things will never rob us of the relationship that has been established in Jesus Christ. We praise your holy name for this wonderful, magnanimous, incredible, awesome 
gift. Your favor freely distributed by your grace, and yet you bear all the cost in mind that makes us acceptable. Hallelujah. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you that Romans was written to let us know this positional fact. May our hearts and minds and our very being dwell on this immovable truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.